All right, good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name's Dave. My Korean name is Tall Weed. So I don't know how to take that. No, I didn't even get a Korean name. I'm not as nearly as cool as Lou. Um, isn't it fun having people like Lou uh, join us and back? And I know, that's a gift. Uh, you know, it's just a chance to remember that God's doing things all over the world, right? So sometimes I think, at least for me, I can get so focused in on, you know, my life and my family and our church, and then God kind of just goes, hey, I'm doing things beyond what you'll ever even see, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, if you're new with us this morning, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are in week three this morning of a series we started in the book of Ruth called loss, love, and legacy, and we are walking through this wonderful story in the Old Testament. And so as you turn, grab your Bible and turn to Ruth chapter 3. Um, as you turn, let me just give you a kind of a rapid-fire review, catch you up, remind you what's happening in our story so far. Uh, the story opens with a famine in Judah, a famine in Bethlehem, and Elimelech, a guy who lives there, uh, t- decides to take matters into his own hands and moves his family to Moab. This decision is sort of an indication that, Mo- that, that Elimelech wants to not trust God, but trust himself. And so he moves his family from this place of God's provision to a nation that's known for uh, their kind of incestuous, sinful lifestyle. And so he does this to kind of take matters into his own hands and provide for his family on his own. And yet his plans don't work out too well because he dies. And uh, his two sons marry Moabite women and then they both die, which in the story isn't real surprising because the boys' names are Maclon and Kilion, which if you remember from week one, the names mean sick and dying. And so when sick and dying die, you're not real shocked. Um, But this does lead me to just a quick question, a quick side note that I want to address here. A number of you have asked me um, this question, and so I thought maybe I should address this. Um, And the question kind of came in different forms, but the basic question um, I would frame up like this. Is Ruth a historical figure? Is this a real story? Is this a true historical story? Or is it just sort of a fable? And at the heart of that question is this idea, because the names seem a little too coincidental, right? Like, who would name their kids sick and dying? And it just feels a little too, like, like on the nose, like, then, then it just works out so perfectly. And so let me answer uh, the question um, real clearly. Yes, Ruth is a historical figure. This is a true historical story. But um, the names, how do we explain the names? The names come out of the story. So let me say it this way. Uh, Maclon and Kilion, when they were first named Maclon and Kilion, those names did not originally mean sick and dying. Their story, the story of Ruth and the story of these two guys and what happens to them creates the meaning for the name. And so by the time the story is written down, it's passed on through oral tradition, the names have come to mean sick and dying. And so now the readers are reading back into the story. This is just how language and words work, right? You think about King David in the Bible, and the name David means beloved by God. Why does the name David mean beloved by God? Because we read David's story, and he was beloved by God. And so his story creates the meaning for the name. We have um, probably a number of modern examples of this in our world. I'll give you just a couple. Um, Here's one. 
Pollyanna. Do you know what a Pollyanna is? Isn't it sort of ironic that Pollyanna in the movie Pollyanna has the perfect name for her character? No, it's not ironic because it's her life. It's that character that created the meaning for the name, which is an excessively cheerful or optimistic, optimistic, optimistic person. I speak for a living. Um, how about the name Benedict Arnold? I mean, do you, do you ever think to yourself, like, who would name their kid Benedict Arnold? That poor dude. Well, no, no, no. His life, his story creates the meaning for the name. The same is true in the book of Ruth. So Maclon and Kilion, sick and dying, they die, and thus their names take on the association of that. Now this leaves Naomi, Elimelech's widow, alone in Moab with no husband, no sons. And she's obviously experienced some massive devastation. And so when she hears that things are starting to turn around back home, that the famine is lifting, she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And she takes her two daughters-in-law with her. But Naomi has lost hope. In fact, last week we talked about how she says, I don't even have a cord, not even a thin strand of a hope left. And so she turns and tells these two girls, just go back to Moab. And one of them does. One of them turns and goes, but Ruth, Ruth is determined to stay with Naomi. And so she goes back with her to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, they have nothing. But the author tells us that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to find a field where she will maybe be allowed to gather scraps and leftovers behind the harvesters. And by God's grace, she not only finds a field, but she's noticed by the field owner. And this man shows her favor. He invites her for dinner and then he sends her home with leftovers and he tells her, hey, come back anytime and my workers will treat you well. And so Ruth goes home with all this food that she's gathered with leftovers and she says to Naomi, mom, you're never gonna believe what happened to me today. And when Naomi hears the story, the story of Boaz and how he has treated her, there is this spark, this this glimmer, this little strand of hope that wells up in her soul once again. And that's where we left off last week. Ruth and Naomi finding just a cord of hope. Ruth and Naomi starting to see again that God is still at work in their story. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. That was the end of Act 2. That's where the curtains closed for us last week. And today, here is where they open for Act 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So some time has obviously passed here. And then one day, Naomi says to Ruth, you know, I think it's time for me to try and find, the text says, a home for you. The Hebrew word for home is, in this verse is actually the word rest. In fact, many translations will actually read something like, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And this is an important point because rest is a very important thing in the scriptures. In the Bible, rest always describes a place that is free from the worry and anxiety and stress 
and apprehension that this world wants to pile on us. Rest, friends, is a place of peaceful restoration. And one of the places that you would hope to find rest was at home. (laughs) That home would be a place where the worries and stresses and apprehensions of life would fall away at least just a little bit. And we can all relate to this, can't we? You've been away on a trip maybe a trip for work, or maybe even a vacation. Even when you go on vacation, even when you go to the greatest place, even when you go on a cruise or to Europe, or even after you spend a week and a half in Hawaii and it's sunny and beautiful and warm, there's still just something about coming home. There's something about home that provides some rest for our souls. Another place that you found rest in the ancient world, specifically if you were a woman, was in marriage. And the idea is that your partner kind of shares the load with you. That all the stress and anxiety and worry of this world that's kind of piled onto our shoulders, that your spouse comes alongside and and helps carry that load with you. Do you experience this in your home? Sometimes I'll just come home from work and it's been a rough day or there's been some challenges or frustrations or struggles and I'll just spend some time talking with Amy about it. And my wife is a wonderful listener. She is a, I'm a good talker and she's a good listener. We're a good match. Actually, we're both good talkers and I try to be a good listener. But she'll just listen and she won't even fix anything. But even in that moment of her just listening, it just feels like the weight of life comes off of just my shoulders and we're carrying it together because marriage is a place where we are designed to find rest. But for the Jews, the the true, the complete, the ultimate place of rest could only come from the Lord. It could only come from trusting in God and leaning on him and from being in his presence. And friends, this is why it was such a huge statement when Jesus shows up on the scene and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's saying, I am here to offer you the peace and hope and confidence that your souls and hearts and minds are ultimately seeking in God. What you are longing to find in God, you can actually find in me. This was a huge, huge, enormous claim. And if you flip back with me to Ruth chapter 1, verse 9, in this scene... If you remember in Act 1, Naomi is bitter, she is hopeless, like she is down and out, and she turns to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and she says this. She says, you know, don't come with me, don't go back to Israel with me, there is no hope. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In other words, go back to Moab and get remarried. In other words, I do not think that God can take away the worry and anxiety and stress of your lives, I do not think that God will come through for you. You better go find that in Moab. But now here in chapter 3, in verse 1, after hearing about Boaz, after one day out in the field for Ruth, after experiencing the provision of God, rest for Naomi is once again found in Bethlehem, the place where the Lord provides. Rest is now moving back to where it belongs. Verse 2. Now Boaz, 
with whose women you have worked. This is Naomi speaking to her daughter-in-law. Now Boaz, with whom you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Friends, this is where the story gets a little PG-13. Okay, maybe R, but we'll stick with PG-13 today. Um, kind of related to that, a friend of mine, uh, I have a good friend who likes to draw cartoons, and sometimes he'll draw cartoons about my sermons, sometimes he'll draw cartoons about passages that we read, and um, listening to a, a ser- my sermon on Ruth chapter 2, I got this cartoon and it, it, this is his interpretation, so stick with me. It says, bikers for Jesus. Like, this is like a big Harley convention, right? And then it says, then Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, arrived in Bethlehem, just in time for the barley harvest. And then this biker guy says, right on, brother. And then his friend sort of whispers to him, and he kind of sits there disappointed and goes, ah, I could have sworn he said Harley Barfest. And I don't know what sermon he was listening to, but that does not fit the message of Ruth chapter 2. However, it perfectly fits the story of Ruth chapter 3, because the barley harvest, that was last week, it was not a lot of fun. That's where all the hard work happened. It's where they were harvesting day and night. There was tons of work. There was no party. There was no fun at the barley harvest. The party, the Harley Barfest, <laughs> happens this week at the threshing floor. That's our passage today, and here's what it looked like. Every town in ancient Israel, in fact, all throughout the ancient Near East, would have had what was called a threshing floor. And the threshing floor in most towns was just a circular patch of extremely hard-packed dirt surrounded by stones for a border. If your town was extremely prosperous or wealthy, sometimes it would have cobblestones laid down. Other times they would even build a raised wood platform. But in either case, there was this hard surface, and what they would do is they would take the barley, the stalks of grain, and they would put it on the hard surface, and then they would trample it. Sometimes they would have animals walk over it. Sometimes the men would beat it with rocks or tools. And what that would do is that it would crack the stalks and it would cause the grain and the husks to separate from one another. It would all get kind of get mashed apart. And then the men would take pitchforks or sometimes shovels and they would do this thing called winnowing. It's a word from our passage today. And they would toss up all of that stuff in the air and the breeze, the stiff kind of firm evening breeze, they would typically do this in the evening, either up on a hillside or down in a valley where the wind would come whipping through. And in, in our story today, it sounds like this is a threshing floor down in a valley because it says she's going down to the threshing floor. In other words, they would, they would toss this mixture up into the air and, and the, the wind would grab the lighter stalk or chaff and separate it from the heavier grain. And so they would just toss up the chaff 
Uh, they'd toss up the mixture and the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall back to the ground and they would do this over and over and over again. And after a while, what they would have is a pure crop of wheat or a pure crop of barley that was left. So all the landowners now and farmers would bring their harvest up to the threshing floor and together they would have this end of the season winnowing event and it would sometimes last for weeks. This is not a a one hour or two hour or even a one day thing. This is a weeks long deal and it was kind of a celebration. It was a big party because the harvest was over and all the hard work was done and so you have to imagine the scene. All the men, all the working men of the town and the surrounding villages are hanging out in this place. Just the guys, the wives are at home, and they're sleeping out overnight. Why? To protect their crop so no one will come and steal it. So they're there day and night. They're celebrating the spoils of their labor, and they're camping out, and they're, they're, camping out, and they're partying together. And to tell you the truth, things could get a little out of hand. And it would kind of often turn into a bit of a frat party, if you've ever been to one of those. There was eating, and there was drinking, and there were activities going on that weren't so honorable to the Lord. And yes, this is the PG-13, our part of of the message. Remember that at the very beginning of Ruth, the story starts this way. The very first line. In the days when the judges ruled. And we talked about how that statement said... During a time when people in Israel weren't necessarily living godly lives. And so this is a time in history when the people are not living for God. And now all the guys are gathered to not live for God at the threshing floor. In fact, take a guess. Who do you think was the most frequent visitor to the threshing floor during winnowing season who do you think might just show up in the evening or at night when all the guys were up there eating and drinking and partying yeah even in church we're going to say it prostitutes prostitutes the number one visitor to the threshing floor the girls that showed up were there looking for business and there was good business opportunity during those weeks of winnowing at the threshing floor. And so now, back to our scene that you can only imagine, there's this huge frat party happening up on the hill, and all the guys are up there eating and drinking, and the prostitutes are cruising, and now all of a sudden, Ruth's mother-in-law says, Hey, sweetie, here's an idea. Let's do this. Get all dolled up, put on some perfume, and head on out to the party. And Ruth's thinking... Are you kidding me? Mom, do you know what goes on down at the threshing floor? Do you know the kind of girls that show up at these kind of events? Are you sure this is a good idea? You see, that is the scene here. That is what Ruth is walking into. And so the author makes sure to tell us this, verse 5, that Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. But you can even hear the hesitancy in her voice. You can hear the worry and concern in her tone. I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And here's the point. This is a real scary, risky deal for Ruth. This is not something she was used to. This is not something in her comfort zone. 
but she is obedient. And friends, here's the point for us. A life lived for God will not be predictable. A life lived for God will not be predictable and will be a life where you are called to take risks. When your story starts to merge with and surrender to God's story, you will find yourself with people and in situations you never would have predicted before. When you start to follow God and his story starts to become your story, you're going to find yourself on a threshing floor or two. And friends, it is so important for us to just stop and pause and declare this and recognize it because sometimes in church, sometimes as 21st century Christians, we fall into the trap that the main goal of following Jesus is to avoid people and places like this. That the reason we gather here together is that so we can avoid the threshing floors of this world at all cost. That God's number one and pervading will for our lives is to keep us neat and clean and tidy and separate from the messy, broken, dirty, dangerous places of this world. And yet when we read the scriptures, what we find is that Jesus was with these sorts of people in these sketchy sorts of situations all the time. All the time. In fact, even his enemies lobbed that as an accusation against him. The Son of Man, Jesus says, came eating and drinking, and they say, my enemies, those who are out to get me, say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That guy hangs out down at the threshing floor. The point is this, friends. Jesus does not come to teach us how to avoid the mess, but to model for us what it looks like to engage it. Got any threshing floors in your life? Got any places where because you are following Jesus, you have been called into the mess, into the brokenness, into the mire and muck of this world to be a redemptive healing agent for the kingdom of God. And friends, if you don't right now, I got one for you. Royal Family Kids Camps, the first week in July, and we'd love to invite you under that threshing floor, wouldn't we, Tom? You see, friends, here is what I believe. Here's what I believe the scriptures say over and over and over again with tremendous clarity. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to have a threshing floor or two. Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to have a threshing floor or two. Some place where you feel over your skis, ill-equipped, and you're thinking, how did I end up here? And God, you are going to have to show up that you are going to have to do your work because I'm not comfortable in these kinds of places with these kinds of people. Friends, one of our goals as a church, and we're not ashamed of it, we're just real bold and upfront about it, is this, to help you find those places, to help you find the threshing floors that you are called into. 
One of our goals as a church is not to help your life be more neat and clean and tidy, but to help you trust and rely on Jesus more, to help you engage the mess more, to help you become like Jesus and make him known. And you know what? God does some of his best work on the threshing floors of our world. By the way, just as a side note here, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to mention this. Have you ever noticed that the Bible is filled with stories that involve prostitutes? I mean, have you just, I mean, seriously, have you ever noticed this? And not just prostitutes, but like sexually, sexually illicit people, people with major sexual issues, stuff that's really embarrassing and like rated more than R. And I'll just say this real quickly. You can accuse the Bible of being a lot of things, but you can't, you can't accuse it of being boring and you can't accuse it of being non-authentic. Right? Who needs daytime television, friends? Pick up your scriptures and read. It's amazing. It's just amazing the truths that are woven into the authenticity and brokenness of this book. Friends, here's why I think the Bible so often talks about brokenness and pain and even prostitutes. It's because we are so often tempted to think that the last person God would engage or could use in this world is a prostitute. That God's main goal in this world is to separate himself from people like that. But this story, the story of Ruth says, even those places are not beyond the purifying, cleansing, redeeming work of our great heavenly father. You see, in this story, God is about to do some work down at the threshing floor where he does some of his best work. And listen to what Ruth does. Verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, I'll let you interpret that for yourself. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Now, who do you suppose he thinks or fears that might be? Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Friends, the key, key word of, in this passage is the word corner. It's not the word you thought I would say, is it? It's the Hebrew word kanaf. Kanaf. It's also translated Wing. I gave an entire message about this word. I think it was my very first sermon at Cedar Mill. The word kanaf, wing or corner. Remember last week in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz is talking to Ruth. He's just met her and he says this. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, under whose kanaf, under whose corner you have come to take refuge. And here is one of the big questions of the book of Ruth, friends. Who will ultimately protect you and who will ultimately provide for you? Who will ultimately be your protector and your provider in this world? You see, when the Hebrews talked about being under the wings of God, it was their way of saying, God is our protector and our provider. He is the one who gets us through the difficulties and struggles and challenges of this world. And this idea of God being our protector and our, and our provider spilled over into marriage. 
When a man spread the corner or wing or kanaf of his garment over a woman, it was his way of saying, I, it's like an agent of the Lord, I will protect and provide for you. And traditionally, this was done, this sort of spreading of the garment was done when a man was, take a guess, proposing. This is proposal language, friends. It's like when he spreads the corner of his garment, the wing of his garment over her, what he's saying is, will you marry me? This is like paramount to taking a knee in our society. And so now Ruth shows up onto the scene, on the threshing floor, lies down at Boaz's feet, uncovers his feet, he wakes up, and then she says this to him, spread your kanaf over me. What is she doing Has she lost her mind? Do you see what she's just done? She just proposed to him. She asked him to marry her. And I'm not sure if you're catching on to this right now, friends, but that was not the normal way things went in the ancient world. Women didn't propose to men. Immigrant, like scavenging farm workers, didn't proposed to wealthy male landowners, not how things would typically go. And friends, this verse is the climax of this story. If we really understood what was happening, this is the point at which we would be shocked and we would gasp and we would hold our breath because there is so much tension around what is going to happen now. Again, I want to say this. This was not in the script. This is a moment when Ruth kind of goes rogue. This was not part of the plan. If you remember back to Naomi and what she told her daughter-in-law to go and do, she said, uncover his feet and then lie down. And then what? He'll take it from there. Her exact words, he will tell you what to do. Now you just need to lay there, be quiet, and let things happen, right? But Ruth, if she wasn't far enough out of the box already, she decides in this moment to go even further, and she takes this huge, enormous risk. Boaz, will you marry me? Remember how last week we talked about Boaz being this picture of what it looks like to be a person who lives for God when you're on top? What it means to be a person who exemplifies the kingdom life from a place of privilege and power. That's Boaz. He kind of shows us what that is and what it looks like. Well, this week, Ruth is a picture of what it looks like to live a kingdom life from the bottom, from the margins, as an outcast, as an immigrant, as a lowlife. What does it look like to live for God when you're a person who has no power and no position and no privilege? And here's what the story says. You do not have to live in the box this world wants and will try to put you in. No matter who you are, No matter what your position or power or privilege is, you do not have to live in the box this world wants and will try to put you in. This story says loud and clear, even when the world wants to tell you you're just a woman, you're just a field worker, you're just a high school dropout, you're just black or brown or old. This story says real clear, even when the world wants to tell you, just stay in your box, God says, nah. I've worked throughout human history through people who in big and little ways have determined that this world's boxes are too small for me. 
Amen? And here's the question for you and I. Got any boxes today? Got any boxes this world is trying to put you in? Got any places where you are being pressured or pressed to conform to who this world says you are instead of who God says you are? Let me ask you this. What would it look like for you to decide to follow God? What would it look like for you to let him define your reality? What would it look like to boldly move forward and take a risk based on who he says you are and what he's calling you to do instead of what the world says you are destined to be? You see, the world wants to tell you and me and everyone in this room that there is some box, that there is some path, some road you must follow. And God says, not with me. You see, Ruth, she is way outside of the world's box now. Her world wants to tell her, you are just a woman. You're just a widow. You're just a field worker. You're just a scavenger. You're just a Moabite from Moab. You are no one. So you just sit back and you take what the world gives you. Ruth, you just sit back and you take what you deserve. But Ruth says, nah, because she knows that she's something more. She knows that she's not defined by this world, that she is defined by the living God of heaven and earth. Boaz says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. We'll talk about him next week. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Friends, in this section... We see the character and selflessness of both Boaz and Ruth. You see, sometimes this story gets framed up in the wrong way. A lot, a lot of ways. It gets framed up in a lot of, I think, wrong ways. But sometimes people frame it up like this. Yeah, Ruth, you go, girl. You get yours. You let them know, right? But the story is very clear that that is not what's happening here. Ruth is not stepping out of the box for herself. She is not selfishly motivated. She is not taking all this risk for her own advancement or status. Ruth is doing this selflessly and shamelessly for Naomi. She's doing it for someone else. And Boaz sees that more clearly than anyone. He sees it right away. Man, your kindness, the kindness you have for and towards your mother-in-law, it continues to grow. Friends, let me tell you this. As you go out to sort of step beyond the boxes this world wants to put in your life, 
the kingdom life, the Jesus following life, the out of the box life that God wants you to lead, to lead is not a selfish, self-advancing life. It is always a life lived for the other. Not for your glory, not for your status, not for your advancement, but for theirs and ultimately for his. And Boaz sees Ruth's heart in this, and he sees it right away, and so he wants to protect her character and reputation. He also said, verse 15, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? How do you think it went, mom? You sent me to the threshing floor with perfume and high heels. No, that's not what she says. Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And what's interesting about this section of the story is there is no unit of measurement given here. It doesn't say Boaz gave her six cups of barley or six pounds of barley or six liters of barley or six, you know, epaphs of barley. It literally just says six of barley. And the reason is, is that the amount isn't important. What the author wants us to understand is the number. The number is what makes the statement here. You remember back in Genesis chapter 18, uh, there's a story where Abraham, sort of the, the patriarch of, of, the, of the Israelites, of the Jews, he's visited by three men or three angels. And as a way of sort of honoring them and, and offering them something, he gives them three measures of flour, And because of that story, it became custom, it became tradition um, that the standard fellowship offering was three. That you would give someone three units or three measurements of something to say, you are an honored guest and visitor. I love you and I value you. And so when Boaz offers Ruth, not just three, but six, what's he saying? He's saying, three for you and three for mom. See, Boaz ain't no fool, right? He knows to take care of mom, but it's more than just that. You see, the story continues to not just be about Ruth. It continues to go back and continues to be also about Naomi. That's why he says, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed, because this story is still about her. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 1, Naomi shows up back in Bethlehem, and she was, they all said, hey, Naomi, you're back. And what'd she say? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. I'm not pleasant or lovely anymore. I'm just bitter. And then she says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And what she believes is that she's empty and that she will be empty forever that there is no way in the world that God could ever fill her up again. But now, as this story has continued to move forward, we are seeing that God is starting to refill Naomi's life once more. That slowly but surely, she is going from a life of empty to a life of plenty. And that's the power of God. To take a life 
that in every way feels and seems and maybe even is empty and to even take that life and to make it a life of plenty. Final verse, then Naomi said to Ruth, wait my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Wait. The Hebrew word for wait there is the word yashab. Yashab. It means to wait with patient confidence. She says, honey, Ruth, wait with patient confidence. And friends, I would argue that this is such a significant move forward for Naomi because she went from a place of having no hope, not even a thread, not even a cord, not even a strand of hope, to having just a little thread, just a little thread. And that little thread pushed her forward, right? And caused her and allowed her to make plans and to take action and to send her daughter off on this sort of bold mission to the threshing floor. And now, as the chapter concludes, she not only has a cord, not only just a a thread, a strand of hope. She has so much patient confidence in God that she says to Ruth, now here's our job. We'll just wait. Friends, this is such a big move because I would argue that waiting sometimes takes more faith and more trust and more confidence than going or acting or doing ever does. And some of you here this morning can say amen to that because you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've waited. You've waited on an answer, on an answer from a job interview, or you've waited on the answer to a proposal, or you've waited on the results of a medical test, or you've waited for months or years or maybe even decades for healing or help, or relief, or restoration, and you know you could stand up right now and give a testimony about how hard it is to wait and have faith and confidence in God. But that's Ruth today. God has met her in this place where she's gone from empty to plenty, where she's gone from, I don't even have a cord, not even a strand, to I have so much confidence in God that we can now just wait to see what he will do. Where's God asking you to wait today? Is there any place in your life where what you really want to do is act or move or go or do or fix or work? But maybe God is just saying, step back, sit down, hit the pause button. And what I really need you to do right now is just wait and trust in me. That's a tough request. But we can only do it because the one we wait on, the one we trust in, the one in whom we have confidence is the one who loves us so much that he sent his son, that he sent his own, one and only son to this earth to defeat all of the sin 
and death and suffering and pain in this world. The reason we can have confidence as we wait is because we know that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Someday this world that has gone so wrong will be made right and be restored once again. And so friends, every week we gather to remind our weary souls of that truth and we remind ourselves of that at the table at the table where we take just a little piece of bread and just a small cup of juice and we say, he gave his body and he shed his blood for my sin and your sin and the redemption of the entire world. And so someday it will be okay. It will be right and good and the way God intends it to be again. And so I can wait. Do you need to be reminded of that truth again today? Is there something, is there some area, is there some relationship or struggle in your life where you need to just hear God say, hey, you just keep waiting. I haven't forgotten about you. I know it may feel like it. I know it's been a long time. I know you want it resolved, but I'm just asking you to wait with hope and faith and trust and confidence. If that's you today, I invite you to the table bring that issue and to lay it at the foot of the cross so I'm going to pray and then the tables are going to open and when you're ready come down take the bread take the cup go back to your seat and when you're ready to receive the elements and declare the victory of God over the brokenness in this world and over the brokenness even in your own life you just receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ and we'll do that kind of on our own but together In other words, you can take it whenever you want to, but we're doing it as a community. Amen? All right, let me pray, and the worship team will come. Father, thank you for who you are, your faithfulness, the way you work in ways that we could never imagine and cannot see. I thank you for this this story and for these characters and specifically today for this woman who so boldly trusted in you, who so boldly risked it all. She's an example to me, Lord. Thank you for the way that you call us to wait and then sometimes call us to act and call us to move and call us to go and then sometimes call us to wait again. And we ask you, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us strength and wisdom and discernment to follow where you lead. As we come to the table this morning, Lord, we declare that all of our hope and faith is in you, in your death and resurrection. And we declare you, Jesus, as Lord and King and Savior. And we pray it together in your name. Amen.